Hi, welcome to this episode of the Primus Podcast. This is Sarika, your host today, in conversation with Dr. Michael Sullivan, and Aditi is our producer today, even though you don't see her. Dr. Michael Sullivan is a clinical psychologist and is currently a professor of psychology, medicine, neurology, and physical and occupational therapy at McGill University. He holds a Canada Research Chair in Behavioral Health. Over the past 30 years, Dr. Sullivan has worked as an educator, clinician, clinic director, and department chair. He is best known for researching psychological risk factors for pain and disability and developing risk-targeted interventions to foster occupational re-engagement following injury. One such intervention, the Progressive Goal Attainment Program, PGAP, has been included in the official Disability Guidelines Work Loss Data Institute as an evidence-based approach to managing work disability. Please welcome him to our podcast. Thank you for having me. So um, let's first get into the question of what inspired you to get into this field? So what inspired me to get into this field? I was completing my final internship, pre-doctoral internship, at what was then probably the first multidisciplinary um, pain treatment center in Canada. And um, the... um, it's not a, it wasn't exactly by design that I ended up there. It's not the place that I thought I'd applied to for my, uh, for my pre-doctoral internship. Most of my background until that point had been in, in more traditional mental health. I'd done most of my training in chronic mental health institutions. But, um, but my application did end up at the uh, Royal Ottawa Rehabilitation Center. And that, that's when I was first introduced to... Um, the problem of chronic pain and disability, and it, uh, and the work that uh, that I that I was doing with clients, you're you're struck both by the the magnitude of the impact that pain can have on individuals' lives, and certainly at that time, also sort of like humbled by the the lack of effective tools as a clinician to do much about it. Mm-hmm. And um, so it was, uh, it was an area that fascinated me immediately and has kept me engaged for the last many, many years. Yeah, it's an interesting uh, perspective into how we come to where we come. Yes. <laughs> it's a long journey. <laughs> yes, part, some of it by design and some of it less so. Yes, yes, absolutely. So maybe if you can share some of your stories about uh, case studies or stories that got you to design the PGAP framework. So I guess to put things in context again, so back in the mid-1980s and Canada and the U.S. were just beginning to, I think, come to the realization that um, chronic pain problems 
we're going to require the input of a of a range of of disciplines and mm -hmm. and so we saw the development of more and more multidisciplinary pain treatment centers but at the time there was very little research to guide any of the interventions that were being offered so uh, I guess, you know, today where we use the language of evidence-based medicine as guiding our practice, it's back in the 1980s, it would have been intuition-based medicine. And, uh, and some of those intuitions were, you know, reasonable and some of them less so. And um, so I became more and more interested as well in, in developing a program of research to better understand some of the factors that might be impacting negatively on the recovery potential of individuals with, uh, with uh, debilitating pain conditions. And as, as a psychologist, my, my interests were into so like psychological, psychosocial or behavioral factors. And so I guess our, our center would have probably been one of the first or among the first to start a you know systematic inquiry into what we now refer to as risk factors for delayed recovery or risk factors for chronic pain and as we be, as we learned more and more about the types of factors that were contributing to to chronic pain obviously I'll, you know it's like one of the objectives was to see if we can turn some of that knowledge into um, let's say at least directions for intervention. So how can how can this, you know, the results of our research help us provide better treatment for individuals who are suffering from debilitating pain conditions. And so at the uh, at the rehabilitation center, we would be examining how the results of research could, you know, be turned into effective treatment interventions. But it was still at in a multidisciplinary pain treatment center. And, and while they are, you know, often considered the flagships of intervention for complex cases, one of the problems is that there's few of them. Um, they're very expensive and relatively inaccessible to anybody that doesn't live in a large urban center. So, so I became more and more interested in addressing how we might be able to put together a skill set or, or a collection of tools that could actually be delivered by one person. And um, so this would be trying to sort of incorporate everything that we knew from best practices in the management or rehabilitation of pain-related conditions and, and turn that into a, a, a set of skills that you could train one individual to, to, to deliver. And the thing is that if it was going to be possible to do that, is that you could then provide this intervention on a much greater geographical scale so that while it may never be possible to have a multidisciplinary uh, treatment center in a small rural or remote community, you might still be able to have a multi-skilled service provider who would be able to, let's say, um, still deliver what would be some of the key elements or for successful recovery or improvement for individuals with pain-related conditions. So that was some of the initial thinking, was how to get the essential ingredients of successful rehabilitation sort of distilled into a skill set that could be delivered by one person. And, um, you know, and, and, and though that skill set, you know, it's like if we were talking about PGAP, 
when it was first developed and PGAP today, they're very different interventions because one of the things that we were wanted to do with PGAP was to make sure that it, it would always be considered um, at the cutting edge of evidence-based practice. So that is, we learn more about what it is that contributes to problematic recovery. It's, and if we were able to turn that into an, an intervention, then that, inter, that new intervention would become part of PGAP. So, so that's, that's was our aim to have an intervention that would be effective, that would be um, uh, also, let's say, sustainable from a cost perspective, because particularly when we're uh, talking about, um, you know, it's like uh, regions that are remote or uh, rural, is that uh, there's not a whole lot of, let's say, financial resources available to maintain intervention programs for individuals who have debilitating conditions. So sustainability, cost effectiveness, and, um, and, and, and obviously effectiveness uh, were some of the, you know, it's like the, uh, the ideals that we were trying to make sure that we were incorporating into PGAP. So that's yes. sort of some of the thinking about behind the development of that intervention. Yeah, um, that is really interesting because this same uh, idea can be used for developing countries as well because resources exactly. are so less, right? Um, so and since we've, so most of the work that, that we've done with PGAP has been in Canada, but we've also, it's, it's also been an intervention that has been of interest in, uh, in other countries as well. Other countries that sh share some of the same, you know, it's like geographical disparities in, in healthcare service delivery. So, you know, countries like Australia, New Zealand, and Ireland, uh, Sweden, it's a, how to get effective treatment to individuals who may not have ready access to multidisciplinary care. Yes, yes, and that that's uh, that's what uh, when I read about PGAP and was uh, researching before interviewing you, uh, was uh, that was the most interesting part. Like countries like India, where resources are so yeah. less, if we could train more people, it would be really effective in getting. And these countries have the highest pain. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, co uh, codes, so to say. <laughs> They're very yes, high in chronic pain. Well, it's a double-edged sword where often some of the under-resourced countries um, are unable to provide the type of care for a condition while it was still treatable. And yeah. unfortunately, there's a higher rate of, you know, acute pain problems that ultimately transition into chronic pain. And then once it becomes chronic, there's even fewer resources to deal with yes. some of the challenges that are faced by the individuals. Yes, absolutely. This is something we see, especially in India, this is very common. The chronic pain uh, episodes are very high, especially in the working class. And now with the IT industry, it's become worse. <laughs> yes, I can imagine, yeah. It's, uh, yeah. it's interesting how uh, changes in industry can, on the one hand, uh, uh, it's a come with many advantages from a socioeconomic perspective, yes. but then from an ergonomic perspective, actually create a whole new set of problems. Yes, absolutely. 
So in your experience, what are some of the unique challenges or barriers that individuals with work-related musculoskeletal disorders face when it comes to managing mental health? Yeah, so that's that's it's a loaded question. Yes. So there, the um, uh, the thing about any problem that starts with uh, the two words work related is that <laughs> it uh, what it does is that it, it it means that the whole path of recovery is going to be one where there's multiple stakeholders that are experiencing the. Um, or let's say who have a perspective on the issue or the condition that are very different. And uh, it's a complex system that's going to involve uh, healthcare. It's going to involve the insurer. It's going to involve the employer. And depending on the context, might involve all, as well a legal system. And, and all of those actors are going to be playing a role that could either facilitate or impede the recovery of the individual. And, and there's barriers in all of the systems. And that's why I think that, um, you know, it's like from a clinical perspective, there's, uh, at least in the front lines, there's often not the, um, uh, let's say, the resources, uh, the disciplinary resources uh, that are required for early detection of a mental health problem that might be accompanying a musculoskeletal uh, problem. So there's the, the, the question of uh, the lack of detection. And, and that, again, I'm not fluent in how um, uh, primary care medicine or rehabilitation is staffed in India. But here in Canada, our, you know, it's like primary care physicians aren't looking for mental health problems early on. And, um, and physical therapy clinics are just not equipped with the mental health professionals that would be necessary to both detect and intervene. And, and there's not much of a motivation for change there because a lot of those services are, are funded by the insurer and insurers are very, very reluctant to acknowledge or consider mental health problems that are associated with musculoskeletal injuries, often because there's the worry that if there's if a mental health diagnosis appears on a file is that that claim is now going to be a lot more expensive. And there's still in some insurer policies this very sort of, you know, Cartesian black and white perspective on on the human condition where things are either of the mind or of the body. And as soon as there's any indication of psychological influence, sometimes that can be the basis for dismissing a claim as something, because, you know, it's like the, one of the challenges that we face with musculoskeletal conditions is that often there, there's actually very little um, in terms of objective indices of physical pathology. And uh, even though scientifically we know now that you don't have to have evidence of a lesion to be experiencing debilitating pain, for many insurers, it's their policies are such that unless unless there's some evidence of a lesion, then it's it's not our problem. So that both of those factors end up playing a role, contributing again to greater lack of early detection and mental health problems, like any other problem that uh, affects the human condition is that the longer it goes undetected and under, un, untreated is that uh, 
the greater the probability that it becomes chronic and then very treatment resistant. So those those factors, and um, and then there's the employer factors that can sometimes play uh, a detrimental role as well. So that the uh, uh, you know it's like in the past it it was realized that taking a black and white approach to disability that you were either disabled or you weren't and you could only go back to work when you weren't disabled anymore is that it, it uh, as as we learn more and more about debilitating conditions such as musculoskeletal conditions and we realize well it's not that that you get this injury and then you recover and then you're 100 percent it's for many individuals is that they're going to be continuing to experience residual symptoms of pain probably for the rest of their lives but it doesn't necessarily mean they can't work but for many employers it was unless the person was 100 percent then they didn't need they, they shouldn't be coming back and this the same goes now with mental health conditions where it's we're realizing as well that mental health conditions at least for some it's uh, like depression or post-traumatic stress is that this is something that the individual may never recover from 100% and will continue to experience residual symptoms that will wax and wane in severity over time for, for much of their lives. And I think we've made some significant gains in terms of you know, accommodation for individuals who have residual symptoms of pain. And how is it that we can accommodate the workplace to facilitate a person's participation in, in, in their employment? Can we be looking at modified duties or light duties for the individual, at least for a period of time? But then the question is, for individuals who also have a comorbid mental health condition, how do you accommodate that? What is it that we need to do to accommodate the individual who has pain and depression or pain and PTSD and is thinking of returning to work? And part of it is that we just don't have a whole, there's not a whole lot of research that's been conducted on what are suitable accommodations. And the thing about mental health is that mental health problems come with this whole social stigma where yes. it's um, as much as I think many governments have tried to destigmatize mental health problems, it's, uh, it's people know very little about mental health problems and anything that people don't know a whole lot about they're often cautious towards it. And, and you know, it's like the question is, does the person, the person with a, a disability related to a mental health condition, should they be um, basically sharing that information with their employer or their, yeah. their coworkers? And, and also advocates of mental health saying, well, we should live in a society where there's greater openness to that. But I think from the perspective of many people with mental health conditions is that they'll tell you that that openness is, is not necessarily there. I think we still have law, big, big strides to make in, in having a more accepting and accommodating community, both from the social perspective and also from an employment perspective to better accommodate individuals who would like to return to work. Yeah, the mental health component becomes very tricky this with so many barriers to it right the, yeah. the social stigma the employer stigma the you know the personal also barrier is there sometimes people do not want to accept um, that there is a mental health component to their physical. yes and i think that that reluctance to accept that there's a mental health element we see that even more so in individuals who also have a medical condition. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, it's like many um, uh, 
clients who have a debilitating pain condition uh, following an assessment uh, is that uh, we might be informing the individual that they're also uh, showing significant signs of depression. And for many clients is that they'll dismiss that by saying, well, the only reason I'm depressed is because I have pain. And if mm -hmm. you can get rid of my pain, then I'll be fine. And um, whether that's true or not, often we don't know, we'll never know the answer to that because we may never be able to basically alleviate the individual's pain completely. Mm -hmm. But it's, uh, it's that you now have a situation where it's going to be next to impossible to engage that person in an intervention for a mental health problem if they only see that mental health problem as the consequence of their medical condition. Yes, and also I think there is a fear that others are going to perceive the pain as an imagined pain, or yeah. or yeah, that's that's something we hear from a lot of patients with chronic pain. How would you address that? It's interesting, you know. It's 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 um, you know, it, it's a very difficult system that uh, individuals with pain must need to navigate. In um, this is in nineteen fifty nine, George Engel published a paper uh, on psychogenic pain. So he was a physician, and he argued that uh, many patients who were presenting with pain symptoms actually didn't have a pain problem and mm -hmm. uh, that they had psychogenic pain and that this psychogenic pain could be detected by a physician in a brief 15 minute interview and that additional medical tests were not required. Okay. And that idea that there was such a thing as psychogenic pain has persisted in medicine in the absence of any supporting evidence. <laughs> but because it's so part of the clinical lore and the mythology of medicine that for many for many physicians when when there's an absence of physical pathology to explain the person's pain symptoms is that they make the leap to the head and mm -hmm. once the leap to the head is made all medical investigations stop so for the patient who is navigating the the medical system following a musculoskeletal injury, it's there's going to be a certain weariness to having anybody talk about psychological anything because they're concerned that if that discussion goes too far is that they're not going to get the, the treatment that they re, that yes. they require and that they might actually have their claim dismissed if it's a work loss claim. So it's 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 an incredibly challenging problem and and one that I mean, first of all, I think it's it's under recognized the degree to which um, that, uh, that it's under the degree to which physicians, some physicians, not all, continue to make this leap to the head in a manner that is completely at odds with our current scientific understanding of what the pain system is, and also that there's, you know, it's like when when physicians use the term medically unexplained pain. It implies that there's such a thing as psychologically explained pain, and there isn't. There, there is no data to suggest that a psychological factor can create a pain, a pain problem. Mm -hmm. So much of the work that we've conducted uh, over the last few decades on psychological or psychosocial risk factors is that we, 
we've conducted a lot of research that suggests that certain ways of thinking can make your pain better or can make your pain worse. But we've never been able to demonstrate that certain ways of thinking can actually create a pain problem. But that mythology still exists in the minds of some medical practitioners that somehow a psychological factor can be mysteriously transformed into a pain symptom. And as I mentioned, there is no evidence to support that. Yeah, and, and it's not just physicians, it's also general public who's hung on to the word yeah. psychosomatic. And the moment you talk about uh, uh, psychosocial factors creating or aggravating pain, people just go to, oh, that is psychosomatic pain, which yeah. is totally dismissive in the way yeah. they look at the pain. Yeah. And sometimes I think even the, the inferences take one step further, where there's, there's actually the suggestion that the individual might be misrepresenting or exaggerating their yes. pain, you know, it's like, uh, for opportunistic reasons. And, and this can be really damaging to the individual with pain as well. And, and unfortunately, it's, you know, it's like pain is an invisible disability for that yeah. for the, uh, for the majority of individuals who have a chronic pain problem is that there? it's not something that individuals can see. It's not like if you're in a wheelchair, everybody understands immediately that you have a very serious problem and there's probably a lot of things that you can't do. But in some of our work with, uh, with individuals who have sustained injuries in the workplace is that they'll say that even their coworkers were accusing them of feigning or exaggerating their symptoms just to be able to get some time off. And it's yeah. unfortunate that 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 we that that even in the community, it's we have this. Uh, I think this suspicion about the authenticity of the symptoms that individuals who have sustained injuries are going to be reporting. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That is something of great concern to patients, right, with uh, chronic pain. They, they, yes. they wouldn't be accepted as uh, being honest about their pain. And, uh, and, and people are really dismissive at workplace, especially. I've noticed, observed that even I worked in retail, so it's a high-intensity <laughs> job. Yeah. And uh, it does, like, people start labeling people with chronic pain as lazy or not wanting to work where yeah. you know, those issues are there. Okay, and so on to our next question for our listeners who are also practitioners and are new to the framework. What are some of the key psychological principles or techniques employed in PGAP that contribute to its success? So that's a that's a very good question. So, as, as I mentioned, one of the things that we were striving for in the development of PGAP was to, to make sure that we had an intervention that uh, where every element of the intervention would be considered evidence-based, meaning that for this technique that we're using, there is research out there to show that reduction in this risk factor will yield better recovery outcomes. And... Um, so, and, and that remains today, that uh, if you look at any part of the, the intervention, 
that there would be a, a, a research-based or evidence-based rationale for having that technique or procedure within, within the intervention. So in PGAP, one of the things that we wanted to do was to have an intervention that would be targeting the uh, risk factors for prolonged disability in individuals that had a wide range of debilitating conditions, whether they be medical conditions or, um, um, or mental health conditions. And, and just to digress for a moment, the, uh, one of the things that were, were PGAP differs from many interventions that would be offered, let's say, to someone with a musculoskeletal condition. It's that uh, although the clients might have a pain problem, is that PGAP really wouldn't be considered a pain management program. So that we, there's actually very little within PGAP that would be considered or defined as a pain management technique. What PGAP tries to do is that it tries to reduce the, the determinants of disability. So that even though we think of, you know, it's like disability and symptom severity as being almost synonymous, is that they're not is that what the factors that contribute to symptom severity in someone with a musculoskeletal condition are actually very different than the factors that are gonna be contributing to disability. And symptoms themselves only explain part of the individual's disability. And in PGAP, what we try to do is, is to target as many of the determinants of, of prolonged disability with the objective of facilitating the person's resumption of important life activities and one of these activities or activity domains being their employment. And so mm -hmm. our, our successful outcome in PGAP is a return to work outcome. And um, so we begin working with the individual and again with the focus on disability where we take a look at what it is that they're doing now compared to what it is that they were doing prior to their injury. And then we try to work on reducing that discrepancy. And uh, so the, let's say the, the cradle or the platform of PGAP is a behavioral activation platform. Behavioral activation is a type of intervention that was developed many years ago for the treatment of depression. And so because we knew that even with individuals who have pain conditions, a significant proportion of those individuals would also have comorbid mental health symptoms, that we wanted to have a, an intervention platform that was gonna be able to target both. So, you know, I think the, the our research shows that uh, uh, probably one of the biggest impacts of uh, PGAP, other than facilitating resumption of occupational activities, is the, uh, is the reduction in depressive symptom severity. Whether we're talking about someone who has a pain condition with a comorbid mental health condition or individuals who have a disability related to a mental health condition like major depressive disorder or, or post-traumatic stress disorder, is that it's, the intervention is very, very effective in reducing depressive symptom severity, which is not surprising given that it's built on a behavioral activation platform. And in behavioral activation, it's essentially what we're trying to do is re-engage the individual in important, activities of their lives. So that uh, we start working with the individual to look at all the activity domains that have uh, been disrupted or negatively affected by the individual's condition and look at how we might be able to modify some of those activities to facilitate the person's resumption of them. So, so that's the platform. On top of that, we also include a number of techniques that are specifically designed to reduce some of the psychosocial barriers that our research has suggested need to be targeted in order to 
you know, as I promote uh, positive recovery following injury. And these would include catastrophic thinking, fear avoidance, uh, disability beliefs, and uh, negative expectancies and perceptions of injustice. So these are psychological factors that the more they are represented in the individual following injury is that the, the more complicated the, the path to recovery is going to be. So within, within PGAP, there are techniques that are specifically designed to reduce these psychosocial risk factors. And I guess in some way, making PGAP very unique in that, in that sense, in that it would probably be considered the, um, you know, still to say it was the only cycles, the only intervention that addresses psychosocial risk factors would um, uh, be, would not be accurate. But to say that it was an intervention that was specifically designed to reduce the psychosocial risk factors that are most likely to impede recovery would probably be an accurate statement. Yes, um, as I was reading through the two scales that you have, you use in PGAP, the um, perceived injustice and the catastrophizing um, scales, I, I was wondering if uh, we could actually use these as predictive uh, you know, methods when somebody reports injury or comes with disability. So it's a, it's a good question. And, and um and one that I think uh, many um, uh, service delivery centers and insurers are, are interested in saying, what could we be including in early on in our assessment of individuals that yeah. would allow us to detect the individuals that are most at risk for problematic recovery? And, and there's, um, I think that tools like the pain catastrophizing scale have been incorporated probably into almost every pain clinic and rehabilitation center around the world. And so I think clinicians find it to be a very predictive tool in that sense. And, um, and there's a number of insurers now that have started to include the injustice experiences questionnaire as, as part of their early screen screening, even at the, at the early stages of claim submission to identify individuals that are going to potentially have a more prolonged path of recovery and screening you know, as like insurers will screen for various reasons. Yes. <laughs> Sometimes it's for more, not necessarily ones that will directly benefit the client. Yeah. Yeah. But if you're going to be screening, I've always been uh, the believer that if never screen for anything that you can't or aren't prepared to intervene on. So yes. screening for perceptions of injustice makes total sense if you're gonna do something about it. Screening for catastrophic thinking makes total sense if you're gonna do something about it. And it's the doing something about it that hasn't happened to the degree that I think it really needs to. It's, uh, these are very complex risk factors. It requires much more than a brief discussion with a client on how to, how to target it, how to reduce it. And there are also risk factors that are being maintained by all sorts of sources, often external to the clinic, external to the individual, external to the workplace. And so it's, it, it takes, you know, a significant investment to say, yes, we're going to, we're going to see if we can identify important risk factors and then try to put in place the resources that the client is going to need to overcome these challenges. And, and we need to do a whole lot more of that. Absolutely. I think um, if we are willing to use these scales for prediction, then we need to also incorporate the treatment yes. plan. <laughs> right. I remember a, a 
not that long ago, I think maybe about it was pre, in the pre-COVID times, and I was giving a talk at an international rehabilitation conference, and it was, you know, probably a, a thousand rehabilitation professionals in the audience, and these would have been like occupational therapists, physiotherapists, vocational rehabilitation counselors, and and I asked the audience, I said, how many people here use the pain catastrophizing scale as part of your screening? And probably ninety percent of the audience raised their hands, and then I said. And what do you do if the person has an elevated score and no one raised their hand? You know, it's, <laughs> and then I think that still all too often we, we see situations where individuals will use information from psychosocial screening to blame the, the client for not getting better. Saying, yeah, well, the person didn't improve in our program, but then he had a high catastrophizing score, you know, as if that's yeah. the reason. And, and that's not the way we should be proceeding. That was never the intent of many of these measures. And certainly that's not why we research things. We don't research psychosocial risk factors so that we can blame the patient for having them. Is that, you know, it's like in clinical science, it's our responsibility if you identify risk factors that you then put in place the resources needed by the client in order to overcome those challenges. Yeah, absolutely. And so taking from there, because uh, you were mentioning that many clinicians use the scales but don't know what to do with it. So how could uh, more uh, practitioners train in PGAP and use it as a tool? Yeah. So, and, and it's a, I mean, it's a significant problem now where, um, you know, it's, not necessarily good or bad. It's over the last, I would say, two decades. It's the the silos of disciplinary practice have become more porous. So people adopt tools or techniques that were developed in disciplines other than the one that they were trained in. Yeah. And and what's good about that, it you know, it's like the thing about you know we've learned a lot about psychological uh, factors that can impede recovery. But a psychologist, first of all, is not necessarily always the best person to be intervening with those, especially if the person has a medical condition, because the person with the medical condition is going to be asking, why are they sending me to a psychologist when I have a back yes. pain problem? You know, so it's, there's that challenge. And psychologists are hardly ever represented in the front lines where you need to be detecting things early. It's, uh, you know, it's like in, in my practice as a psychologist, it's, you know, it's like if anybody's ever referred to me, it's rare that they are less than one year post-injury. So, you know, psychology is always the last door on the left. Yes. You're, you're sent there after you've seen <laughs> everybody else. And um, so, so to have psychological tools sort of incorporated earlier on in the repertoire of services that are offered to injured individuals makes a whole lot of sense. But you also then need to train the people there on how to use them. And so, for example, for us in, in PGAP, recognizing that psychology was probably not going to be the discipline that's going to be delivering this intervention just because there's too few psychologists and they're not necessarily in the right place. So we focus much more on, on trying to train people who are already at the front line of rehabilitation in the delivery of PGAP. So most PGAP providers would be occupational therapists, uh, physiotherapists, rehabilitation counselors, and um, a handful of psychologists. But, but again, it's psychology is too far down the line to be using an intervention that is designed to prevent chronic disability in someone who has sustained yeah. an injury. 
Yeah, and um, the moment we refer to a psychologist, <laughs> things take a different turn for people. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, as a psychologist working in this area, it's, yeah. I often end up having to spend like an entire session, sometimes two, just explaining my role mm -hmm. and, and trying and to do it in a manner that's going to engage the client. Yes. And it's so, so yes, psychology has to be part of the fabric of the services that we're offering to our clients who have, who sustain debilitating injuries, but the psychologist is perhaps not always necessarily the best uh, professional to be delivering that inter intervention. You know, it's like once the individual starts showing signs of, you know, it's like severe uh, mental illness is that yes, then you're going to need a trained mental yeah. health practitioner. But if you catch a problem early enough, is that sometimes even though there's psychological factors that are playing a role, is that they're they're not as entrenched um, or as debilitating as they will be six months or eight months from now. Yes, and I think uh, nowadays with the role of health coaches or life coaches yes. coming up, they can play an extremely um, important role in yes. having training in PGAP and, and um, using that with patients in collaboration with physicians. So that yes. might be more acceptable. And, and, and I think in the, in, the, in the domain of health, there's, there's always been sort of like these protectionistic policies that, you know, if it, if it involves movement and only, only a physical therapist can do it. If it involves thinking or feeling, then only a psychologist can do it. Or if it <laughs> involves completing an activity, only the occupational therapist can do it. But what happens is, is that we're also recognizing that the, the magnitude of these health and mental health problems exceeds the number of professionals that we have to treat them. And more and more, there's been not just interest, but evidence to support that uh, that paraprofessionals or even peer-trained individuals can be quite effective in successfully managing the symptoms of even mental health problems like PTSD. So it's, yes. um, uh, but you know, it's like we still need a, a bit better openness from our clinical practice communities to consider that that maybe you don't need to be uh, of, a, of a more traditional intervention discipline in order mm -hmm. to be someone who can assist someone in their path to recovery following injury. Yes, absolutely. I understand. Um, but also a lot of people without certification get into helping people and that could be an issue. Um, so yes, PGAP can, uh, training in PGAP can really yeah. offer, open up scope of help for people and access to help for people. Um, yes, and we, um, we conducted a trial with the um, Veterans Administration in the United States a number of years ago for military veterans with PTSD. And, um, and at first we were uh, going to be proceeding with psychologists as our PGAP providers for this, this group of individuals. But then we were faced with some of the challenges where, where military members didn't want to be seen by a psychologist. And, and it's interesting it, because in the military, it's um, having a mental health condition or seeing a psychologist can have a really, really negative impact on your career. And uh, because if there's something on your 
file that indicates that you have some problems, it's possible that that might impede a promotion to a position where there's a higher level of responsibility. So it's um, so there's kind of this negative attitude towards um, uh, mental health professionals like psychologists. So we had to become a bit more creative in um, addressing how we were going to be intervening with uh, or basically who we we're going to be using as interventionists. And so we, um, in that trial, we had a chaplain who is who we trained as, as a PGAP provider. We had uh, a peer support individual, so another retired military member, and, um, and an occupational therapist. And, and I say that, you know, it's, it would be hard to say that any one was more effective than the other. I think it's, you know, it's like if you have the right type of individual and you provide them with the training necessary to deliver an intervention effectively, I, yeah, I don't think that the disciplinary training background plays all that much of a role then. Yeah, and it could be really interesting because it can improve access to these services. Exactly. Yes. Without, without the negative um, biases we have. Yeah. And I think access is key because, again, it's we were in a situation and I think that probably the uh, our, 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 our pandemic period made it even more clear that the the need for both health and mental health services um, far exceeds the resources that are being offered to uh, to our individuals. So. Uh, moving on to connecting PGAP with uh, musculoskeletal disorders, beyond the individual level, what policy or systemic changes do you believe are necessary uh, to better support individuals with uh, musculoskeletal disorders? Yes. So it's one thing developing a an intervention that can be effective and fostering better recovery or rehabilitation progress. And then it's another issue entirely on how you're going to be integrating that within the system of care that is provided to individuals who have sustained work-related um, injuries. And for us, what that has required is often working at many different levels, uh, at a governmental level, at an insurer level, at a practice community level. And I guess part, part of, or one of our more, let's say, successful efforts at integrating PGAP as a standard piece of a, of a system of care that is made available to individuals with uh, work-related injuries was in Washington State in the United States, where we were invited a number of years ago to present some of the work that we had been um, conducting on psychosocial risk factors and the development of, of, um, um, of risk-targeted techniques and interventions. And, um, and so first, this was uh, the presentations were at, at higher levels, the administrative level of the Workers' Compensation Board there. And then they were interested after the presentations to see how this could be integrated into the services that they were offering to their injured workers. And, um, but then that required setting up a community of trained practitioners. So for the next two years, we worked with the Workers' Compensation Board there to train, I would say probably in excess of 
300 rehabilitation professionals so that they wanted to make sure that there was PGAP trained rehabilitation professionals throughout the state that they would be able to ostensibly provide services in the injured workers community of residents. And so, so those two pieces were put in place. And the next piece was working with the case managers who were going to be making the referrals to allow them to, first of all, be able to detect which type of client might be a suitable candidate for PGAP. Because again, since PGAP is an intervention designed to target a limited set of psychosocial risk factors, is that the suitable or the uh, ideal candidate of intervention is going to be someone who presents with a psychosocial risk profile. So we then had to train, I guess, probably in excess of three to 400 case managers in the early detection of psychosocial risk factors, and then to be able to refer that, um, that individual to a PGAV trained clinician. And so all this took the better part of five years to make happen. And so it's a uh, PGAP is still a, an integral part of the services that are offered to injured workers in the state of Washington, where as much as possible, they try to strive for early identification of psychosocial risk and then refer that individual to a PGAP trained service provider. And, and, you know, I think so, you know, we're probably 10 years into, into that uh, collaboration with uh, Washington state. And their continued use of PGAP suggests to me that probably their data suggests that this is a this this makes sense both for the injured worker, the employer, and also for the insurer. So, but the the amount of effort that's required to to go into like really effectively integrating a new intervention to, into an existing system of care is certainly not trivial, but it's doable. It really is doable, and uh, so. So that's sort of what is required. It's unfortunately, we, we still, there's still this kind of tendency to look for an easy fix, you know? And, and I think that sometimes, you know, it's like all the, the important different levels of, of the world of injury and recovery underestimate the complexity or the magnitude of, uh, uh, of of the effort that is going to be required to make a meaningful difference. And so that's one of the changes I think that needs to be made is we need to move away from the idea that there is an easy fix because there isn't an easy fix. These are very complex problems. They require, you know, it's like a, a, a well-trained practice community and, and a system that's going to be able to identify individuals at risk and, and put them on the path to, you know, it's like the, let's say make, is going to be able to provide them access to the resources they're going to be needed for them in order to, to, you know, move along the, along the road that will yield a positive outcome. You know, so I think that that is, um, one of the changes that needs to be made and so it's a lot of it is it's engagement it's effort and uh but i think that there's enough evidence out there to suggest that 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 effort is in the long term going to be worthwhile yeah i think it's more about uh, people getting educated that pain is something that requires patience patience yeah. and treatment <laughs> yeah 
everybody is ready to go get working, but not ready to invest in the treatment. (laughs) So what public policies might need to change to accommodate that? Do you think that would help? So I think it's, I mean, I think we touched on policies a little bit earlier, and mm-hmm. and I think there's there's certain perspectives and policies that are currently in place that are not necessarily advantageous to the individual who has a debilitating pain condition, and I think that you know part of that part of the issue is I think there has to be um, greater. Um, we still have, let's say, at an insurance level, some policies that are based on. Um, let's say, misconceptions and misperceptions of what the whole pain system is about. And I think that we definitely need to take steps to try to realign policies with, with what we know scientifically. And as, as long as there is a, 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 you know, as a, a discrepancy between our policies and what we know scientifically, it's for sure that is a, f- a formula for, for negative outcomes. And so that needs to happen. There's some certain myths that continue to permeate how medical practice uh, addresses. And here I may perhaps I make too much of a broad stroke. It's not all medical practitioners, but enough enough to still create a problem that we cannot have, uh, let's say, practice-based mythologies that are not founded on science where, you know, perhaps in the days of Engel in 1959, when there was very little science to guide practice, you could excuse misperceptions. Not today. We have invested, all of our governments have invested so much in trying to better understand, you know, it's like um, what goes wrong in recovery following injury that we at least owe it to our clients or patients to make use of that knowledge when we're trying to provide care. And, and I, there's, there's no, there's no excusing um, practice that is not based on evidence today, at least not in this area. There's just, just, yeah. you know, it's like, there's still some very understudied health and mental health conditions. And again, you can say there's not a whole lot of evidence to guide practice. Well, that's not the case in the area of pain. We have a lot of evidence to guide practice. We just need to make sure we're aware of it and that we're going to be using it to, you know, it's like in the decisions that we're going to be making for our clients. So I think that that, that has to change. And um, the um, from a community perspective, I think some of the, you know, the, the stigma that's associated with pain, uh, with disability in general, with mental health problems, is that that's going to continue to have a, a negative impact on, you know, it's like, first of all, how open a person's going to be able to be about the condition that they're experiencing, about the, about their needs. Um, and, um, and, and, you know, here I don't know what the answer is because it's a big problem. And I know that, you know, it's like governments have, have really tried to invest in destigmatizing disability and mental health kinds of problems. But we have, we have to keep working on that. Because unless that happens, it's uh, not only are these disabilities often invisible, is that they're going to be hidden as well. And that's not going to be helping anybody. You know? So. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, this is something that takes a lot more effort and time to yeah. create awareness. Uh, 
and, and it will be an ongoing effort <laughs> going yeah. forward. Um, yeah, and the first step is an openness to, I think, first yeah. of all, realize that it is a problem that, that we own, that we need to yeah. do something about, and then look realistically at the resources that are going to need to be put in place to assist these individuals. Yeah, absolutely. So moving from uh, policy to your own uh, keynote speech at Primus Conference, what would that be and what can we expect? So in my keynote, I'm going to be trying to summarize the last 30 years of our research in a 45-minute talk. And what I'm going to try to do is, is present both what is it that we've learned about someone's psychology that plays a role in recovery? And how is it that a psychological factor might be able to influence physical symptoms like pain? And I'm going to be trying to pr present some of the work that we've done in, in a way that is going to, uh, let's say, be readily accessible to, to professionals regard, regardless of their disciplinary background. Yeah. And, um, and also, I'm going to try to give a glimpse of what, what are some of the techniques that have been developed to specifically target these? What do they look like? So there's going to be some clinical demonstration stuff as well that is going to be embedded within that talk. That is so good to hear. It's yeah. interesting. And I'm hoping that at the end of the keynote, for, pe for, for professionals who are interested in taking a closer look at some of the psychosocial risk factors that might be playing a role in the trajectory recovery of their clients, is that which ones would they need to be focusing on? What would be some um, uh, detection methods that they could be incorporated into their practice? And what additional type of training might they want to look at um, in terms of if they want to be uh, feeling more confident and competent in working with the client who's presenting with a psychosocial risk profile. Yeah, that would be amazing for them to learn um, basically what they would need to gain more expertise yeah. in. Uh, just knowing the various factors is not enough. Exactly. Yeah. So it was a great pleasure to be talking to you, Dr. Sullivan, and looking forward to your um, keynote speech at the Primus Conference. Um, well, thank you very much for the, uh, the invitation. I very much enjoyed our, our conversation as well. <laughs>